Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dancer. This one's a downer, and that's a good thing. Maybe. America is stuck. The economic system is slowly subjecting Americans of nearly all income levels and backgrounds to enormous amounts of stress. The global capitalism that drove American prosperity in the 20th century is now making everyone poorer. Well, nearly everyone. And nobody seems to have a workable solution either. Whoever Americans vote for, nothing changes. In past decades, political promises of reform, renewal, liberation, new deals or realignment have been broken, only to be made again in the next electoral cycle. Obama's message of hope and change quickly turned into sit and wait. Bernie Sanders only waved his hands, and even Trump's insurrection in Bravado failed to move the needle much. The less said about Bidenomics, the better. Meanwhile, capital is running wild and unchecked. During elections, voters are encouraged to blame each other for the failures of the democratic and economic systems. Nobody knows how to solve the problem, and nobody can imagine alternatives to the democratic stalemate. If you think this is an exaggeration, you're probably not paying enough attention. Maybe you've been distracted by the culture war, or by the hope machine, or you're busy fear-mongering yourself. But all these are distractions from the main feature of the system that it is rigged, and that there is no alternative. This is the damning, but sadly convincing argument of the chronic crisis of American democracy by my guest, Benjamin Studebaker. My interview style is to challenge authors and suggest that things are, in fact, much worse than they suggest. Today, it's me in the optimist chair. As ever, you'll find links to the items we discuss in the show notes, alongside links to my newsletter on art and culture, as well as ways to support my work. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to be here, Benjamin. I absolutely loved your book because it is about the most depressing thing that I can imagine an academic press putting out. And it's depressing for for the right reasons. We'll get to all of this. But before, I, I want to do a little bit of, sort of background stroke psychoanalysis. Um, what is it that has led you to become a doomer at your still... I, can see from the picture quite quite a young age and and why did you compel yourself to write this, this work of gloom and depression well i started following politics when i was eight years old during the gore bush election in 2000 oh, God. yeah so i started early which i think is a factor uh, initially i was very much opposed to the bush tax cuts and to the war in Iraq, it became very clear to me in 2004 that democracy doesn't necessarily work. Sometimes people get elected that don't have any idea what they're doing and are no good at all to anybody. 
And the system is not very good at preventing that from happening. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that event is 2016. But for me, it's the reelection of Bush in you know, four. I can understand electing Bush once, but twice when I was a kid was an unforgivable sin. Mm -hmm. And American democracy, I've never quite forgiven it for that. Uh, you know, it got worse when you know, Obama gets elected. And then within just a few years of getting elected, he signs the Budget Control Act of 2011. He uh, goes into Libya and cuts the per capita GDP of Libya in half. The country is still in, in civil conflict years and years later. And the responsibility for it gets kicked all over the place. Mm -hmm. Obama blames you know, David Cameron for it. So that was a, a second disillusionment in 2011 that you know, really, really kicked me in the face. And I think in the early 10s, I more or less had the attitude that American democracy is a bad system that doesn't work. Now, I briefly gave myself a reprieve from this when mm. Bernie Sanders showed up on the grounds that Bernie polled better than I expected him to in the primaries. And that made me go, well, maybe I'm overly pessimistic and too bleak. Maybe I have the wrong priors. So I tried to get myself invested in the Bernie campaign on the grounds that, well, if I'm wrong about the polling, maybe I'm wrong about lots of things. Mm. And for a while, I wrote a lot of pieces uh, for various magazines that were trying to support or help the Bernie campaign in various ways. Uh, 2020 came along and the campaign was much worse than the 2016 campaign in terms of how it was run, in terms of its messaging. I was frustrated with the direction it was going in. Uh, and then when he was completely wiped out in, in Super Tuesday, I had a period of contemplation, which ended in me mm. returning to something like the position I had before Bernie happened, but with an even gloomier, bleaker countenance than before, uh, informed by another whole decade of miserable, horrible things. Okay, so you've hit on something that's quite important, because the kind of narrative that has become very popular, particularly over the pandemic, where, where suddenly everyone was reading Christopher Lash and making podcasts about why nothing feels possible. But it seems that you have actually, you have enough of a prior. 2016 isn't necessarily the moment. We're not going to be discussing how social media and, and the old right have ruined everything for everyone. Let's start by thinking about what are you trying to do in the book. The chronic crisis of American democracy. I mean, that's telling us that there's nothing to be done, but it's also telling us that nothing was ever to be done. Yeah. So I have a a broad economic argument for why it's very, very difficult to do anything that would meaningfully change American society and make people's lives substantially better. And that's to do with capital mobility. As it becomes easier to move jobs and money from place to place, it becomes harder for territorial states that are anchored in place to deal with these flows of money and people. And they start competing with each other to attract the things they want and to keep away the things they don't want. And this competition drags them into a, a race to the bottom on taxes, on wages, on labor laws. Mm -hmm. uh, it propels them to make policy in an increasingly sycophantic way, appeasing oligarchs and corporations to try to get them to situate in the territory. And this uh, is a, a logic that only gets stronger the more mobile capital becomes. So the more mobility there is, the stronger the competitive mechanisms are, and the more this logic dominates everything. And the only way you can really disrupt this logic once it kicks off is to have some kind of exogenous event that breaks down that mobility. Because if you try to stop the mobility politically, or you try to govern it, 
through a multilateral approach, say bringing lots of states together collaboratively, the incentives and problems that are kicked up in trying to deal with the mobility ultimately get in your way. So if you adopt a unilateral approach and you try to break out of the international system on your own, then prices of goods and services skyrocket. You get a bunch of inflation. If there's an election, you're not going to win that election in that kind of situation. When you lose, whoever comes in next, they're going to reverse your measures or they're going to have the same problem that you had. And you're going to have a cycle of people losing elections repeatedly until eventually you conform to the incentives. Mm -hmm. If you try a multilateral approach, you need other states to be interested in pursuing that with you. You need lots of governments elected at the same time who are interested in the same kinds of moves. Uh, that's very difficult to get. The United States is a credibility problem in negotiating with other countries because very often the United States will sign an agreement. The president won't be able to get the Senate to ratify the agreement. The next president will tear up the agreement or forget about it. So it's very difficult for the United States to lead people. And so you, you get into a situation where it's very difficult to disrupt the capital mobility without something nobody can advocate for, like, say, a, a, a war with China in the Pacific, mm. something terrible that would be atrocious. And really, that's how it went back in the interwar period when we first had the big reduction in economic inequality. We had world wars that disrupted trade, made it possible for states to raise taxes much higher than before, gave the state a lot of leverage vis-a-vis -vis oligarchs, corporations, and private actors. And unless we were in an environment like that, it would be very difficult to impose the kinds of policies or to do the kind of politics that dominated the 20th century. And to a large degree, we're still operating with 20th century politics in a context where it no longer really applies. So that's the core of the, the economic emphasis that I'm making. As far as what I'm trying to do with the rest of the book, I am interested in, in kind of moving people out of the hope and fear moods that I think dominate American politics. There are these moments of hope where people think if they just elect the right person or the right party, then all of this stuff will be unlocked. Or if they got the right procedural reform, they do campaign finance reform or electoral reform, or they, they do something to qualify the power of the Senate or the Supreme Court, that they can tinker around the edges of the procedures and suddenly that will unlock a lot of latent potential. I think that is not true. And I want to get people out of that mood. I think a lot of people already are out of that mood at this point. Mm -hmm. The next mood is the fear mood. And the fear mood is the belief that while your own hope is not justified, there are bad people and they have hopes that mm -hmm. are justified. And therefore, you've got to participate in this system to try to stop them from succeeding. So you might not believe that the left can do anything, but maybe you think the right can win. And part of the function of the book is to look at the right and go, well, what would it actually mean for the right to win? Can the right win? Is the right in position to win? And my conclusion is, is no, it's really not. And it's a kind of phantom threat that we've kicked up to keep ourselves engaged. So if we can get out of the hope and the fear mood, then we can move into uh, the despair mood where we actually confront the reality that representative democracy, uh, at least structured in anything remotely like the way it's structured in the world that we live in, isn't a good system cannot produce good results, uh, isn't going to deliver for us or make things better over time, either gradually or quickly. Uh, and that, I hope, can force us to get more creative politically. It can reopen our political imaginarium and get us to explore possibilities that we've not been exploring because we've been assuming that we've got to stay within the parameters of 20th century politics. Well, well that's 
that's comprehensive and, and a bit of a challenge that you leave us with at the end. But let's maybe go through these, these assertions one by one, because I think, as, as we already indicated, the recognition of the problem on its largest scale is kind of beginning to seep in into the, the wider imaginary. But I think there is still quite a lot of kind of misunderstanding and, in fact, a lot of you know, toing and throwing as to what it is that's actually going, going wrong. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the recognition that the you know, overeducated, underemployed, and underpaid middle classes were, in fact, producing the stalemate. Only maybe 18 months ago, a recognition that was being produced from, from the right and instantly was absorbed into the culture war. The fact that the workers the Trump supposedly championed, that they were being left behind, that was very quickly being portrayed by the middle classes as, as white supremacy or another one of those, those problems. So, so could we start maybe with underlining how you understand the problem? Because I have a feeling that there are certain aspects, particularly of academic constituency, who might not agree with this kind of 360 assessment that you produce in a book. Yeah. So I think that you know, I start with a quote from Joseph Stiglitz, who served under Bill Clinton. And Stiglitz, back in 2013, in The Price of Inequality, made the then not controversial point that when inequality rises, it breaks people's confidence in the institutions and in the system. It creates an environment where uh, people don't believe in the system or believe in uh, its ability to work. And uh, that means that inequality is not just uh, a problem economically uh, or in terms of its immediate first order economic effects, but it has cultural and political implications. That is something that was widely discussed, I think, in the early 10s by very mainstream figures. I'm mm -hmm. thinking you know, Thomas Piketty, who is not you know, some kind of super far left guy, gets at least as much flack from the socialist left as he does from the right. Yeah. It was something that you could find in, uh, you know, from a lot of different liberal points of view. The idea that the economy affects the culture and you can't talk about these things as separate or disconnected. I think that Post-2016, there was a closing up of this discussion. It became important to a lot of people uh, to avoid dealing with this, lest they give aid or comfort to people that they regard as bad actors. The core of what I'm saying is not that globalization is bad. It's that globalization needs to be governed for it to work, that it's not possible for us to govern it because we have allowed the mobility to become too intense, too quickly before we properly governed it. Coming out of the post-war era, we opened up trade with GATT and we opened it up with the WTO and we assumed that there would be a functionality to this and we didn't properly govern and manage the flows. And the ordinary conventional post-war liberal position is that you've got to govern these flows because if you allow them to run all over the place, if you marketize everything, there's going to be a disembedding social effect. Someone like Carl Polanyi would make that argument. There's a disembedding social or cultural effect mm -hmm. that will get out of hand, get out of control and manifest in lots of different ways, some that you might be able to sympathize with and some that are very difficult to sympathize with, but all ultimately rooted in that economic transformation. So I'm not trying to suggest in this book that globalization is evil or bad or that interaction with different people is, is evil or bad. I would prefer personally a multilateral approach where states come together, 
and set up new rules for how to do international trade that facilitates movement of people and movement of stuff. Uh, it's very difficult to do that. And it's because it's very difficult to do that that we start to get talk of unilateral strategies. In Piketty's book, he starts with, oh, it would be great if we could do a global or regional wealth tax. But if we can't do that, then there's going to be a turn toward protectionism. And when Piketty says that, he's not saying protectionism is great. I think, you know, he's not saying that protectionism is from a trade or an economic standpoint, the optimal path. He's saying that if politically it's too difficult to do multilateralism, people will attempt unilateral stuff. I think it would be good to try to understand how this drive to potentially reform globalization and trade and indeed capital, however it's conceived of. I mean, in, in the book, you, you pay a lot of attention to the oligarchic position, which I think kind of mixes in another thing, because, of course, one can have oligarchic capital that has nothing to do with globalization. But I think it's important to try to catalogue the political approaches that we have seen. And we've just done that now, but to put some names to these approaches. I mean, Trump kind of came up on a ticket of unilateral or bilateral cooperation, and he was supposedly anti-globalization guy. Of course, that, that ran out very, very quickly. How do these proposals map themselves onto politics as experienced by society? So in the book, you catalog different classes of voters. You have the workers, you have the professionals, the employers, and of course, the oligarchs kind of sit on top of that if, if, if they indeed have a body at all. So how does the need for reforms manifest itself to these classes? And how do they respond to them? Who, who were the champions with what message? Yeah. So what's actually happening is it creates a structural incentive to limit wage growth and therefore to limit the influence or strength of the labor unions. As the labor unions have fewer successes, they have a harder time persuading people to join. So they are struggling in part because they've been weakened directly by the state and in part because as they have fewer successes, they become less compelling organizations for workers to join. As we have tax cuts to attract investment and subsidies to attract jobs, this reduces the amount of money available for other kinds of public services, for welfare programs, for health care, for education. Uh, school teachers in the United States, their incomes don't keep up with uh, what you would expect them to earn on the basis of their education. I think their earnings are something like 19% less than comparably educated workers. And there are constant shortages of teachers, especially in the states that pay particularly poorly. Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. states also compete with each other on tax rates because different U.S. states leverage different levels of income tax. Some don't tax income at all. And those states suck jobs and investment away from the states that do continue to tax income. And the United States as a whole, as it cuts its top rates of tax, its corporation tax, it on the federal level also has fewer and fewer resources to allocate and to distribute. And so all of this subjects a lot of people to incrementally more stress. You have working class people in, in my book, those are workers who don't go to college their wages and incomes are suppressed and they don't grow to the degree that they would have grown in the post-war era. Uh, you've got professionals, people who do go to college. They're finding that only a minority of them are really able to get the jobs that they envisioned they would get when they went to college. The large number of them get jobs that aren't in their major, aren't related to what they did with their degree, uh, that don't pay particularly much better than the jobs that uh, traditional working class uh, people would have 
have done in the 70s. There are a lot of jobs that you can do now with a college degree that don't pay better inflation adjusted than a factory job in the 70s that don't come with the pension that a factory worker would have hoped to receive in the 70s. So for a lot of people who go to university, there's a frustration because they're not getting the reward that they think they ought to get for having gone to college. And it produces a cultural antagonism because if you go to college and then you don't get any kind of economic or material reward for having gone, the only way you can continue to differentiate yourself from someone who didn't go is to hold on to cultural signifiers, cultural capital, language, the terms that you learn, mm-hmm. the social attitudes that you acquired. And these become more important to professionals because it's the remaining benefit that they have from going to college is a familiarity with this language and with this discourse. And that means that when professionals and workers try to come together in organizations to cooperate, to organize, what tends to happen is that there's infighting over the quality of the language that's being used. The professionals get frustrated with the worker language. The workers tend to get alienated from these groups. And uh, they drop out and they quit, and the groups are left mainly in the hands of professionals. And there's still too small a chunk of the population to do effective mass politics. So we get lots of left-wing organizations that are very loud, that are very active, that have a lot of college-educated people in them that are not really able to reach down into the society and draw on a mass base in the way that they would have attempted to do back in uh, the middle of the 20th century. Then we've also got small employers who a lot of them have money and don't look like the kinds of people who ought to be resentful to political scientists who look and go, well, if you have a lot of money, then the economy can't possibly be the reason that you're voting the way that you're voting. But a lot of small employers are tied to specific geographic locations. Their business is located in particular cities or in particular towns. So if those cities and towns are not doing as well because the professionals and the workers in those places have incomes that are stagnant, and they're having their incomes propped up by debt, and then those debt bubbles are popping, or they're having it propped up by quantitative easing, monetary policy. These things look unstable to small employers and make them worry all the time about their businesses. They worry about crime. They worry about going out of business. Mm -hmm. And oligarchs and corporations will say to those small employers, well, you've got to support us in pushing down the tax rates and you've got to support us in restraining wage growth because while we might be able to handle the consequences of those economic policies, you won't. So the small employers are often recruited into policies that hurt their customer base and make the local conditions worse. Uh, But they're still often very resentful and very Uh, frustrated with what's going on. And I think most people at this point are resentful and frustrated, and that's expressing itself in lots of different ways. I think there are a lot of professionals who try to direct this resentment towards social and cultural groups, who try to direct Mm -hmm. it at racial groups, at religious groups, ethnic groups, genders, sexualities. And that is another divisive factor. Then we've also got uh, an attempt to get professionals to target workers who have uh, views that are racist or sexist or homophobic or or bigoted in in some way or another. And so if workers are being induced to hate various groups of people and professionals are being induced to hate workers insofar as workers hate various groups of people, we have a, a culture that is driving apart the professionals and the workers and making it impossible to do any kind of mass politics. Oof. I think one of the reasons that you are right about this is that even in laying out this description, you have had to draw on 
analysis that pertains on the one side to the left and the other to the right. So you kind of try to blend in materialist thinking with cultural analysis. And we have seen definitely over the last five, six years, and the same is the true in the UK, maybe more recently, that the two just do not meet in the middle. We can either save the working classes or we can save the college-educated elites. Somehow it's, it's impossible to understand that, that actually pretty much everyone is, is here being suckered by, by capital. And I think that sets up what you do in the book, which is to explain why the promises of either the extremes, whether it's, it's, it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, who come 2016 were both promising to address a kind of chunk of, of those problems from different sides, why it is that they cannot deliver anything that, that goes beyond gesturing. So could you go over what it is that those promises are and why the promises from the left and the right end up eating themselves? Not necessarily because the system is rotten. You know? There's no, nothing that a politician can really do if they're only interested in re-election and, and following whatever the lobby says. But I think there's a deeper problem that you identify, which is that the ideas for solutions to the material and cultural problems are themselves just artifacts of these problems. Yeah. So in the case of the Sanders left, there was always a lack of specificity about what the international strategy would be. Sanders expressed mm -hmm. a dissatisfaction with existing international trade agreements, but he never said, for instance, that he was going to try to throw out or change over or replace the WTO regime with something else. Most of his focus was on domestic policy, stuff like uh, Medicare for all and uh, tuition-free college, job guarantees, policies that would substantially help workers and ordinary people, but would require substantial tax increases. And the question then, if you do those tax increases, is, well, what happens in terms of the competitiveness of the state vis-a-vis -vis other states? What is going to be the mobilization of oligarchs in the face of those kinds of tax increases? What we saw in terms of their mobilization was a, you know, a concerted effort to make sure that Bernie could not win that Democratic primary and could not be the candidate. And we saw over time the Bernie campaign, an attempt to uh, survive the various accusations that were lobbed at it in 2016 of it being a, a Bernie bro campaign with all white male supporters skewing more and more in the direction of socially progressive uh, professional cultural concerns and interests in 2020, which gave it some defense against those accusations, but chased away a lot of the rural working class voters who in the Democratic primary in 2016 had voted for Bernie in states like Iowa, uh, in states like New Hampshire. So what we saw on the electoral map in 2020 was a, a shift in where Bernie got votes. He got fewer votes in rural areas, those people tended to go to Biden or they went to Buttigieg, and then uh, an increase in college towns and in cities, um, not an increase with African-American voters that never materialized, but a substantial increase with Hispanic voters in particular. Mm -hmm. But that trade-off ultimately did not put the movement in a better position to succeed, either at the presidential level or in local elections. The tendency in local elections has been for the left to try to win in very, very blue, heavily gerrymandered urban districts that don't look like the rest of the country. And in trying to win those seats, the candidates have to adopt social and cultural positions that 
make it very, very difficult for the movement to scale and to work in other parts of the country. When people run on a left-wing platform in a more ordinary kind of district, they have to deal with the fact that these members of the House in the squad are very well-known nationally. They have a big national mm-hmm. profile. They're associated with a lot of cultural positions that aren't popular in the rest of the country. And so that really puts the brakes on any attempt to win a large enough number of seats to do the major kinds of reforms that Sanders talked about. And over time, that leads to a turning away from those reforms as the representatives who do get elected have to find a way to to look like they're doing something constructive. They have to shift the goalposts. They have to lower their targets. They've got to find a way to pass off whatever it is they're doing as as meaningful because they don't have anything like the numbers to actually pass major policy reform. Uh, On the right, Donald Trump won the election, but when he got into office, he found very quickly that there was very little he could do as far as disrupting capital mobility. When he tried to start up the trade war, immediately anything he did as far as as reducing or regulating trade was presented as an enormous violation of the international market order. So there was a, a lot of libertarian Republicans in Congress who were militantly opposed to what he was doing who would be happy to vote to restrain his ability to modify trade agreements. And that acted as a break on what he could do. What he tended to do was focus on the bilateral relationship with China rather than the entire trade system. Even then, he only managed to reduce imports uh, of of goods from China by about 6%. And there was a rise uh, of 88% in the same measure of imports from Vietnam. So the tendency was to chase the trade from one country to another. It was not to repatriate Mm. jobs. There was no expansion, really, of manufacturing jobs. They didn't recover to the pre-2008 level, let alone to the peak in the 70s. And once COVID hit, Trump became mainly worried that the economy wasn't going to perform well enough for him to win re-election. So during the election year, he completely backed off all of this. So there was a total running away from it. Now, because the right is convinced that this is mainly a cultural thing, that really the problem with the United States is that people don't believe in it, they're not committed to it, they're not working hard enough, they are narcissistic and don't have the right traits. Mm -hmm. Because Trump continues to wage culture war, they treat him as if he is being successful because they think if you are able to win the culture war and get people to behave better, that that will be enough to resolve all of these economic problems, that there's nothing really fundamentally wrong with the system. It's just that the people in the system don't have the virtues necessary to make the system work. So because of that, they don't really problematize the discrete economic failures of the administration. They don't really recognize them or talk about them. And uh, largely, uh, you know, for this reason, Trump is regarded as this successful figure by many people on the right. And many of them are lining up to vote for him again and to try this thing again. But it's not going to work any better if it does happen a second time. Yeah, I'm afraid you might be right. Even though the book, of course, focuses on the US, I, I, I was trying to apply the UK lens as I was reading it. And at this stage, noted that the difference between the Conservative Party, who is now in power, has been for, for over a decade, and the Labour Party, which is probably going to win at the next elections, the only difference that one can really look at is the policy on trans rights. And even that is beginning to blend into a fudge. So we've got somehow to the point where the economic and, and social, because of the connected policies of, of both the parties, both Labour and Conservatives, and I think the same thing is happening in the US, is to guard a centrism of doing nothing at all and just kind of waiting for things to get worse and worse and worse, because of course it doesn't look like that. 
um, when you're busy fighting cultural wars. I think the only point at which I, I disagree with you on your analysis so far is that I think actually the left is probably engaged in the culture war just as much at this stage as the right is. You posit that the left is a false hope and false dream manufacturing machine. But I'm wondering whether that is indeed the case. Like which bit of the left, if we took away academia, if we took away the hundreds of books about resistance, decolonizing X, Y, and Z, which are ideas that have audiences that could be counted on literally the fingers of two hands. <laughs> I don't quite understand who it is that's producing this kind of cultural false hope whether it is in fact no difference. Because if the left can keep, keep on selling us hope and then not deliver because it has no credible way of delivering it, the same hope delivered by the right of, you know, we click our fingers long enough and it was suddenly going to be 1970s or maybe 50s because that was the last time that the Americans were really American. Of course, that's not going to happen either. Do you see a difference in who's manufacturing what kind of culture? And in fact, I'm interested in, in thinking about whether, whether there isn't an aspect of this cultural fantasy that isn't salvageable. You write at one point that America is locked in a chronic struggle over meaning. And, and gosh, isn't that struggle actually worth having? I mean, meaning, meaning does matter. I, I certainly think it matters. I think the difficulty is while the economic context is bad. And while it's getting worse, the kinds of cultural interventions that are possible will also deteriorate and get worse on the basis that the economy that is, is structuring how people feel and is producing in them their, uh, their resentments. Uh, that's just making it worse and worse so that when people do participate in a cultural discussion, they're operating from an increasingly unstable position that makes it really hard. In, in antiquity, Aristotle and, and Plato you know, make the argument that you've got to have enough resources and enough comfort and enough time and enough leisure to be able to engage constructively in, in philosophical and cultural and artistic practices. Mm. And if you don't have those things, if the economy systematically denies you these things, uh, then uh, if you are still invited to engage in these processes, you're going to be engaging from a position of trying to meet the psychological needs and material needs that you have that are currently unmet. And I think that is a major part of what's going on here. A lot of you know, modern liberal political theory operates on the basis that civil society will, of its own accord, generate uh, cultural progress, generate a culture where we are able to participate effectively and constructively and have dialogue that works. And the argument I really want to make is that if you let markets run wild and you allow capital mobility to intensify and you don't regulate that or control that appropriately, it's going to undermine the conditions for having a conversation that can go anywhere positive. So I care about the conversation. I care about culture and I care about all of that. I just don't think it's even possible to look for anything good to happen in the culture while the economy is getting worse. Okay, then we have to look at the system of democracy itself. Why is it that despite they're compromised, but still best efforts. Our politicians for decades have not been able to move on anything. And, and more to the point, why have we let them get away with this? What is it that we're voting for? What is the relationship between citizenship and, and democracy and representation? You know, no, no biggie, but why does the system prevail? So I think for people who engage in political discussion, which is certainly not everybody, it's it's 
A, mainly people who go to college who learn, uh, you know, engage with what, it, what does liberty mean? What does equality mean? What does representation mean? Uh, and even within the set of people who go to college, the set that really do classes focused around those subjects is, is small and getting smaller all the time. Uh, within that space, there's been a shift in the way that we understand these terms. So uh, liberty, equality, and representation have tended to be hollowed out and reduced over time to make them less demanding concepts so that people who try to use these concepts to make political demands on the state yeah. find that they're much less effective. Uh, and in the book, I, I talk about the tendency in the universities to offer a kind of binary conceptualization. Mm -hmm. So liberty is either positive or it's negative, and those are the two types, and that's really all there is. Or with equality, we're talking about uh, opportunity or outcome, and those are really the only two considerations. Or these days, we're talking about equality or equity, and these yeah. mean two very specific things that you can represent with a drawing of some people watching a baseball game, and there's really nothing else going on apart from that. Or with representation, you know, the old way of thinking in terms of delegates versus trustees. Are the representatives supposed to do what they think is best for you, or are they supposed to do what you want? And this two-dimensional way of thinking about stuff offers undergraduates and our sats of political theory without the thing itself. And I think what's, what's really going on is that in all of these different categories, there has been, and you can look back, I think, at least to the post-war era to find the roots of all of these a running down gradually of the demandingness of the terms that we use. So liberty becomes increasingly focused around non-interference. It mm -hmm. has less and less to do with developing people's capacities or freeing them from relationships of domination. At this point, you know, to talk about freedom as non-domination, as say Quentin Skinner does, you have to have a, a whole talk just to even begin to clear space for something like that. It's not the ordinary discourse. For something like equality, the equality-equity distinction, initially looks like an attempt to get something quite demanding. If you look at the yeah. famous baseball diagram, everybody able to watch the game, everybody able to enjoy the same welfare. I'll, I'll clip that into the show notes. It, it looks like an attempt to give everybody the same thing. But if you can turn that into a group concept uh, and talk about uh, racial groups getting the same on average set of things, that can be achieved by just taking very small numbers of people from all the different ethnic, racial, religious groups and putting them into the the wealthy and into the upper classes, that doesn't actually require meaningful social change. And so this concept of equity that was initially a very subversive and radical concept has become not at all that, uh, and entirely just about ensuring that all of the groups are equally distributed throughout the capitalist system. Uh, with representation, I think that's where things are really getting interesting. I think that there's a pivot from even the idea that the representative is supposed to act for you in either the trustee or delegate sense or any other sense, which we might discuss, uh, to a kind of standing for representation where the representative is supposed to look like you, sound like you, behave the way that you would behave if you were there, uh, <laughs> but not actually do anything. Actually doing anything on your behalf is too much to ask for. So this was a point of the book where I, I wondered whether you didn't get dangerously close to suggesting that we should send more people to college and educate them better. You say that we have eroded the understanding of these terms and, of course, many others, the way that we understand politics, the way we, we understand ourselves as citizens has kind of become devalued and has become subject to this kind of very, very silly punch and judy game. But I don't quite understand how you apply these concepts to the non-college educated groups. So how, how do the workers see themselves represented? What, what does equality mean, mean to them? And 
of course, we, we do want to live in a world in which not everyone engages in politics. In fact, it, it would be tyrannical to imagine that absolutely everyone follows what goes on in the state legislature and in Washington. How do we draw the line between the engage and the disengage and their approach to values? Yeah, so as far as whether more people should become college educated. Part of my point is that as we've expanded access to college education, this has necessarily involved watering down what college education entails yeah. because people are going to college with the expectation that they're going to get a job. Mm. So when they go, they are increasingly instrumentalizing the education and going, well, how does this education contribute to my getting a job? And because you've got lots and lots of people going, it starts to become more like high school in the United States. And in the United States, it's very difficult at the high school level to have real robust civic education because there's too much political disagreement about what the content of that education should be. That's why, in practice, American civics education is always so toothless. It's always, how does a bill become a law? And what are the three branches of government? <laughs> it's always this kind of multiple choice, stupid stuff. Because if you started to bring in real you know, values and what do they mean, you know, to have a debate about what liberty means or equality, these things would kick up way too much cultural dust and upset too many parents. And this is why you know, the 1619 and 1776 project are a part of that cultural forever where they can't mm -hmm. win. You can't actually have a, a high school civics education that is in any meaningful sense controversial in this country. Yeah. And increasingly, that's also true for undergraduate education. As undergraduate education is universalized, it becomes more like high school education. And so it becomes less possible to really get this stuff to people. And this is tied to trying to expand education without actually expanding, say, freedom from participation in the labor market or protection from uh, having to earn a wage. We have contracted that while expanding the number of people to, who go to college. So it shouldn't surprise us that the universities become more instrumental and more focused around jobs. As far as people who don't go to college, I think that often their interest is not purely in these liberal abstractions like liberty, equality, and representation. I think people who don't go to college tend to be more interested in traditional abstractions. It can be God, it can be order, it can be peace, it can be security, uh, it can be prosperity. These are things that are more material that are to do with how their life is going uh, and less ideational. And so when we get into those kinds of terms, I, I think it's, it's clearer that things are just not very good. And so there's a lot of dropping out that occurs uh, yeah. in people who don't go to college. Because if you're really evaluating this system just in material terms, does it make you feel prosperous? Does it make you feel stable? Does it make you feel like there's good order, fair order, just order in any kind of sense? Uh, you know, the system is not really very inspiring on those different metrics. And part of the interest in getting lots of people to go to college is to get them to take up these liberal abstractions so that they don't evaluate the system in terms of whether it yeah. produces on this very basic level. Uh, so I think that the people who don't go to college are increasingly trying to avoid politics as best they can. And I think that's entirely reasonable for them, uh, given that there's not any interest on, on any of the parties or factions really in helping them, uh, they, it makes sense that they would not want to participate. Uh, or if they do participate, it tends to be on the level of conspiracy theory. It tends to be focused around you know, which particular individuals or groups are secretly working together to screw them over. Uh, and the people who believe in conspiracy theories are at least you know, trying to understand what's going on. And they realize that the media yeah. is not really looking out for them. So there is something to that, just in terms of epistemically recognizing that 
the powers that be are not interested in you. But then if you try to fill that gap, there's no organization, there's no worker organization that could help workers to develop their own view of what's going on. So it becomes internet rabbit holes. Yeah, QAnon fails to incorporate, unfortunately, and we're stuck. <laughs> right. And then the fact that they have those views becomes a further justification for marginalizing them. The fact that they believe these things means, well, therefore, you know, isn't it right and just that we completely kick them out and we ignore them and we don't listen to them and we gatekeep them out. So I think for a lot of them, it makes sense to try to get out of politics and into a different area of life. And I think also, even for people who do go to college, there's a significant number of people who go to university, encounter this stuff, and it doesn't really take for them. They get frustrated with it. After a few years in the workforce, in the real world, they uh, get over it and move into one of these, I call them enclavist positions of looking for a safe space where you are protected from participation in the wider society. I think you identify the, probably the biggest challenge of social and political theory, which is to marry the two sides together, yes? so, so that we can have on the one side the concepts like liberty and the, the other approaches, whether it's faith or family, where actually you do go through, through the four ways of non-participating in politics, which are faith, family, phantoms, and futurism. And you list the ways in which they, by and large, could also be strangely dead ends, I'm not entirely sure whether I agree with all, with, with all of them, particularly that we are seeing the emergence of movements like the post-liberals, who are active both in the UK and the US to a certain extent, who have a, I think it might be misguided, but this kind of idea that faith and politics can somehow be brought together. And I was super interested to read in the book about how politics maps onto the different types of faiths in the US. And I, I think I didn't quite understand. I kind of assumed that all churches were political in the US, but that might not be the case. Yeah. So in terms of faith, of course, there are people who look to politicize faith. You know, the Christian televangelists tried very hard to politicize faith. There are lots of different um, mm -hmm. faith-based professionals who look to politicize faith. So one of the arguments I make in this section is that all of these enclaves are difficult to use to hide from the political because you either need politics to sustain the enclave or politics will tend to invade the enclave and permeate it and take it over and uh, weaponize it as a way of forcing you back into politics. So I think a lot of people go to, say, churches hoping to get out of politics and then they find politics has taken over the church. Yeah. Uh, there are some differences in different uh, classes uh, when we poll or survey them, their attitudes to religion and their attitudes to churches. So one of the trends that I observe is that working class people are more likely to say that faith is important to them uh, than professionals who have been to college. Mm -hmm. But they are less likely to feel comfortable in a church or in a religious organization. Right. And I think this is in part because the spiritual leaders who get involved in religion, who have college educations, when they come into those churches, they are often coming in hoping to do something political with them. And so to some degree, what they're interested in doing conflicts with the ordinary person who goes, who is from the traditional working class. And so gradually what's happening is I think we're getting a lot of people who are faith-based or faith-oriented or are spiritual but not religious, who uh, maybe haven't been to college but don't feel comfortable in churches uh, with religious professionals, with trained priests, who uh, are often entering these spaces with a more educated perspective, uh, a more college educated perspective, and therefore 
a more culture war oriented perspective, the very thing that many people are, are looking to religion to get away from. Okay, so religion won't save us, surprise, surprise. And if we've read the book so far, nothing else will, because we're definitely not invested into being saved. Our politicians don't even understand that saving us is part of the job, and so on and so on and so on. We are we're completely stuck, Benjamin. I'm completely with you. This is the, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about this book is that I have, without your, your education, without necessarily being invested in politics for so long, I had a pandemic kind of download of, of doom where I've got to the point where if you take a reasonable position where you don't necessarily want to join either the left or the right, whether you don't want to join the church, whether you don't want to go to Mars with Elon Musk, there's nothing to look at, really. There is, there is just this kind of radical centrism of waiting for us all to get slightly poorer. You do finish the book with a substantive chapter, which hopes as it hope, it proposes that the book might be wrong. But of course, it does it in a slightly devious way because you explain that the book could be wrong, but it could be wrong in a way that it's clearly not going to be wrong anytime soon. So if I were an editor wanting some kind of positive outcome, what potential futures are you imagining here? Yeah, I wrote that last chapter in part because whenever I talked to older people, there was a, a great frustration when I would describe this book and say that it didn't end with any kind of positive spin. And I started looking around at academic books and I realized that every academic book that, that I could find that talked about any kind of serious problem that had been written really in the last 50 years mm -hmm. involves at some point saying, aha, but I have the answer to the problem. And I think in <laughs> saying that, the theorist... Uh, tries to attract a bit of a following and tries to make the book more popular. And ultimately, though, it, it feels disingenuous. And I think it also causes people to take the whole thing less seriously. If somebody has worked out what to do, then is it really that big a problem to begin with? And one of the things I want people to take away from this book is a need for them to exercise their own imaginations. We need to imagine something else that we could do that would be worth doing. And that means that we have to you know, recognize that there isn't some kind of uh, thing already on the table that will take care of the problem. In this chapter, though, I, I try to play along here with someone who would like me to be a more conventional academic and offer a hope narrative. And so I, I take people through a step-by-step -step process of let's try to imagine a political movement that runs for elections, contests elections in the United States, and all the problems that come up as you try to build such a thing. And let's just outline all of the different problems you have to solve in the course of making that movement to success. And I end up coming up with a list of 10 different things It's a good list that I'm, I'm tempted to clip into the show notes just to, to show, show everyone the extent of the problem. Yeah. And I meet lots of people who think uh, you know, that one of these problems isn't a real problem and that you can get a solution without mm. having to deal with it. And I think that's the, the common thing. There are lots of people who will say, well, they're, you know, yeah, yeah, I agree with the doom up to a point. Here's what we've got to do, though. And the thing that they say, here's what we got to do, is accounted for in that 10-point list uh, as something that would be very difficult to deal with. Nevertheless, I, I go through imagining that maybe we have somehow solved each of these problems. You know, Let's say that we, we do manage to come up with a solution to each of these problems. What would the next problem be? And I stack them up. Yeah. Uh, then I go into a discussion of, of revolution and the difficulties we have with imagining other systems. The problems that tend to come up when people do try to construct really radical 
alternatives that are meaningfully, substantively, really radically different. Many of the same organizational questions that we talk about in electoral politics come up in revolutionary politics in a different form. I think a lot of the time people look at revolutionary politics as a terrain where they don't have to worry about all of those problems, but they tend to be transfigured into a different form instead of gotten rid of. And if you don't recognize them or see them, then that makes revolutionary politics even harder to do. Uh, I, I kind of run through, you know, there's an issue with just our, our whole attitude as people. Mm -hmm. We are not really willing to put ourselves in danger, to risk being shot or being killed on behalf of some other society, some other world. Our most radical thinkers will talk about democracy without contradiction, radical democracy, a democracy that doesn't have all of these, these ordinary contradictions because procedurally those contradictions have all been wiped out. And I think that there is a lack of reckoning there with the reality that when you create a democratic forum of any kind, really, if it includes people of different levels of education, the people with greater levels of education have more cultural capital, and they're usually able to talk over people with less education. Uh, and I do a little bit of, of even talking about Plato and, and one of Plato's arguments about Athenian democracy, which is that the people who go to school for rhetoric, they're always the ones talking. <laughs> and the people who don't go to school for rhetoric, they just have to follow al along with yeah. these, these talkers. So even if you have direct democracy, you have a deliberative forum, it tends to be the case that the talkers prevail. And a lot of the radical Democrats talk about this problem, this uh, if you want participation then you have to deal with the fact that many of the participants don't have various epistemic qualities that you want them to have. Yeah. And if you want the epistemic qualities, then you have to make exclusions and you have to prioritize people. And once you're making any concession to that, you're going to end up repeating a lot of the kinds of dynamics that we see in representative democracy, hmm. where you kick out large numbers of people on the basis that they don't know enough or aren't educated enough. Uh, and that creates an opportunity for those who provide the education, if they have the wealth to provide the education, to play with the, the form of education and the kinds of terms and concepts that educated people use. Okay, so your two solutions are either the introduction of a third way, the power party, as you call it, or complete revolution. I think we can challenge, I'm going to do this facetiously, I'm going to challenge your, your pessimism about the potential of all of this, because we have just seen the birth of no labels. Senator Joe mentions brainchild, an alternative party that so far has generic values like integrity, you know, because politics supposedly has ever promised la the lack of integrity as a platform. So far, it doesn't have any candidates. It doesn't have any policies. I don't know. Maybe it goes kind of up to point of your 10 problems. You know, it's the kind of party that some kind of oligarch would probably fund out of sheer boredom. They're not interested in culture wars because they, they don't really have the vocabulary to really articulate what culture is. Anyhow, so let's laugh at no labels. Like, but realistically, yeah. what, what is this? Is this one of those attempts? And, and if it is, what, what could we learn from its inevitable failure? <laughs> It, it reminds me of a, a little bit of a different version of Change UK from a few years ago. Oh, exactly. Yeah, or uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, a kind of radical centrism that is trying to make an effort to reconcile cultural positions. But again, that just conceals the fact that on most economic issues, it's basically the same thing that everybody else is offering, just with a different cultural glaze. And with Joe Manchin in particular, he has a politics that works well in the state of West Virginia, but the reason that most senators in most parts of the country are not like Joe Manchin 
is that most U.S. states aren't like West Virginia. Uh, and so very often there are situations where the Democratic Party doesn't want to support some more radical measure. There needs to be somebody who takes the blame for this. Ideally, that someone is someone who will benefit politically from taking this stand. And Joe Manchin happens to be the senator in the perfect place to oppose what the party wants to do and get an electoral benefit out of it instead of a detriment. Mm. So there's a symbiosis between Joe Manchin and the Democratic Party in that he lets the party not support things that it doesn't want to support. And then he personally takes all of the blame and in his home state, all of the credit for the fact that the party isn't moving. Similar to what John McCain did with uh, healthcare when they were trying to do repeal and replace under Trump, where John McCain votes down repeal and replace. And the party gets to go, well, we tried, but John McCain didn't let us do it. The whole party is off the hook. It's all John McCain. And he gets all of the blame and all of the credit with the people that he cares about, really, which at, at that point in his career, I think, were mainly his, his fans and, and followers and admirers. I think you're probably right. This is a kind of strategy of just externalizing the extremes. And, and it does seem, I mean, no labels from, it's kind of very, very PR unsavvy, but actually probably quite well studied launch. It seems like the most cynical way to, to, to do this. So as much as I hate to agree with you on this, I think nothing is really going to happen here. What about the possibility of not a revolution, but but something nearing a cultural collapse that that could eventuate some kind of hostile takeover? This isn't exactly the the Bolsheviks um, going and saying, we're going to change the world and everything's going to be absolutely fine, because no one's really articulated a vision like that in in the last couple of decades at the, at the very least. But if we spend enough time with, well, at least the conservative cultural war rights, there is some evidence of the fact that, that bits of society are collapsing. So you know, that the kind of economic constraining of the everyday American that has resulted in the fentanyl crisis, the fact that San Francisco, if I believe Twitter, is now a place in which one cannot possibly live not that I'm wishing this, but is there not an element in which kind of quote-unquote managed decline results in something that produces a kind of moment in which only a total rift, which could be completely negative, but could also mobilize something? Well, I think that there are lots of different people who are being effectively kicked out of all of these boxes, who are not able really to find any particular home that works for them and go into despair. When they go into despair, they don't have any organization to get involved with that has a positive vision for what to do with the despair. So they tend to kill themselves. They tend to take drugs or become alcoholics, Mm -hmm. or they uh, commit mass shootings and kill other people. They go into despair. They have nowhere to go, nothing to do. So they uh, ultimately kill themselves. And I think there is always a part of American society, and I think there always has been a part, that part has maybe gotten a little bit more visible in recent years, but there's always a part of American society that is killing itself. And we have always, uh, you know, going back to prohibition, been trying to deal with the part of American society that's so miserable that it wants to die and is trying to slowly kill itself, you know, whether that's through cigarettes, whether that's through hard drugs, whether it's through alcoholism. Mm-hmm. There is a chunk of people who can't find any kind of way to take the despair in a positive direction, and those people kill themselves. I don't think that 
that population is a threat to social order because that population is mainly suicidal mm. rather than uh, interested in constructing something. The people in that population are atomized. They're cut off from each other. They're not in modes of organization that would allow them to build something. Uh, and this, I think, comes back to the lack of any belief in something to build. That something to build doesn't have to be uh, some overly utopian fantasy project, but it's got to be something that's worth struggling for on some level. And I think that at many different points in history, there have been people with you know, various levels of utopian delusion imagining that they can do some kind of politics that would bring about something marginally better than now, and that it would be worth putting themselves in some level of danger to accomplish that. But you can even think about the American founding fathers who wrote their names on the Declaration of Independence and put themselves at personal risk to bring about a system that was marginally better. Most people don't regard them as utopian Bolsheviks. Just people who wanted something marginally better, thought they could get it, and were willing to put themselves in danger. That impulse is completely dead now, completely dead. And anyone who even talks about putting themselves in danger on behalf of any other kind of society is treated as a crazy person. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would possibly add to this, not as, again, not as a glimmer of hope, but I think there is also the space in which the suicidal tendency of, of a chunk of American society opens up the possibility for authoritarian resource grab and control. And that maybe is easier to articulate and easier to imagine coming from the extreme right. But of course, the left is doing exactly the same thing. The moment the rift becomes big, there is kind of new space to colonize. But I probably will concede that that space is colonized culturally as opposed to economic. You could always buy off the army by raising their pay. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, um, Benjamin. So my slightly frivolous question, and this is not quite frivolous because you, you've got up nice and early for a conversation. Your shirt is ironed. I think you've shaved. How come you you haven't ended it all? There was a really fundamental question. Once one has broken with the kind of false consciousness that pretends that things are really okay, that someone is coming to save us, that. You know, whether it's the revolution you're hoping for or some kind of alternative politics or, or that you will just survive in your current circumstances, that things are going to be good enough. Once you've broken, broken away from that fiction, there's, there's really no way to go. You know, your, your, your last chapter notwithstanding. So what's your solution? I'm kind of asking both in terms of psychoanalysis, you know, what it is that you do to, to, to survive and, and where, where might this, this work take you next, if, if anywhere, if there is a next? Well, back in the early 10s, the last time I was this gloomy, and maybe I've never been quite this gloomy, but the last time I was pretty gloomy, I was thinking about you know, maybe something I write could help People have new ideas about what to do, and those new ideas may come about much later on, and they may not be something I would recognize. Uh, but maybe if we think about this and we talk about it, and we really dig into just how hopeless and miserable it seems to be, that will eventually cause us to have new ideas, and those new ideas might lead us somewhere. And I'm thinking about those things myself and trying to come up with new ideas uh, that's a lot harder a project than just pointing out that none of it works. <laughs> but I'm I'm slowly trying to work at it. I I do a podcast, Political Theory 101, where we read different political theorists from different places and periods, and we try to throw together different things that different people have said or thought and see if they generate any new ideas. 
I try to be heterodox. I try to deliberately get outside of the 20th century uh, paradigms and uh, to, to not stay stuck in a particular 20th century tradition because I think they're all dead ends on their own without any kind of balancing or intermingling with anything else. So I, I'm really interested in a lot of this stuff. I can get myself interested in you know, just reading some old dead political theorist and writing up you know, a description and talking about it with somebody. I, I loved uh, when I was at Cambridge supervising students and just talking to them about various dead theorists. So I'm able to keep myself engaged pretty easily. Uh, I don't know that very many other people, if they had my view, would have it so easy. And for that reason, when people find my view too psychologically unpleasant, I certainly don't blame them at all. It is not a very easy view to have. Well, I'm going to leave the listeners with a recommendation, I think, to power through your proposal is the only way. It's not a way forward, but it's necessary. Benjamin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. <laughs> it wasn't fun. It's the opposite of what <laughs> fun is not what we want to. Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut, by Benjamin Studebaker. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor is Marshall Pope. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. Thank you.